We're going to be in chapter 6 with regards to the horsemen, what they, Hollywood, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they misidentify and misdefine the word apocalypse. Yeah, apocalypse actually means revealing. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. So, um, apocalyptic literature to be revealed, catastrophic on the other hand, is what you're thinking of, but that's Hollywoodized. So the idea of apocalypse and the definition that we use can mean uh, a cataclysmic event, but typically in, in, its, uh, uh, in the literature, it, it means to be revealed. So um, the four horsemen of the, of the revelation is basically what that means, not the four horsemen of destruction and mass chaos. All right, so... Um, I'm going to draw some stuff for you guys today. My wife is always telling me that she's visual and it helps her to, to understand things. So I'll just draw some stuff for us all today. Because as we ended last week's class, we made a distinct uh, a statement that there is interaction and connectivity between um, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls of God's wrath. And that... All of the, the series of events end in, the, in two cataclysmic events. So it's the, uh, it's the sixth and seventh seal, uh, sixth and seventh seal, and no, I'm sorry. It's the sixth seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl all end God's judgments in the same capacity. And there's great interaction between the trumpets and bowls. And the seals give the context or the environment into which God's judgment is poured. So it's very important to keep the relationship between all of these things in your mind. And so I'm going to try to draw that today and give us a picture of where we've been. So we started where? We started with, and I'm going to draw like this. I'm going to try to make it, and this is the church, okay? So we started with the seven churches, all right? And the seven churches are where? In the world. <laughs> okay, so you draw a circle, which represents the world. Jesus is among uh, the seven churches. And I'm going to draw a little radiate thing there so that Jesus is involved in the seven churches. Okay. So the church is in the world in its fullness. And then we go from there, right, right into the sovereignty of God in the throne room visions, chapters uh, 4 and 5. And I'm going to draw up here another circle. And I'm going to put a throne in it. All right, and then I'm not even going to try to draw a lamb. I'm going to just write the word lamb. Here, okay? So we... we so far now in John's revelation, what do we have? We have the church in the world under persecution and under going through things. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the church spirit is saying to the churches. Then we go immediately into the throne room of God where we see God sovereignly overseeing all of this. And we have symbolic pictures here of the glorified creation as it's intended to be. Glassy sea, rainbow, heavens and earth, and all of that. Then we see the Lamb who takes the scroll, right? 
and he begins to open the scroll. Now I'm going to put draw a picture of the scroll. This is I'm just going to do like this. Okay, so we got a scroll, and there are seven seals, and I'm just going to draw them like this. Seven seals. There. Okay. And I want to draw this. The lamb is holds the scroll and he's actually releasing this. And so when this is released, we're going to show this and then I'm going to show, I hope this will stay up, I'm going to show how all of the trumpets and seals all interrelate to the opening of the scrolls and how all of that coordinates. All right, so Jesus opens the scrolls. I don't like this necessarily because it almost looks deist where Jesus and God are removed from the earth, but I think that is countered by the fact that the lamb is actually here. So anyway... That's where we're at so far in the book. Okay, The scroll has been taken. That is the kingdoms of God the, 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 that God has given the kingdom over to the, the, to the Lamb because of His work on the cross, His redemptive work, His finished work. Lamb that was slain. This goes back to Daniel 7 where it says that, And I saw one like the Son of Man approach the throne and receive the kingdom. That's this picture. Okay? Um, and that goes back to uh, Revelation 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ he received from God. That's the scroll, so that's the depiction. And So we're going to start from there. And I, we talked about last week the inter interdependency and the interaction of all of uh, the scrolls, seals, and what have you. So we're going to start this morning with the horsemen of the apocalypse, which is the four horsemen of revelation, not the four horsemen of destruction. What? Or that. All right. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we're going to go through Revelation 6, 1 through 8 today. Um, so there's two different things that you need to understand. Most premillennial dispensation, the premillennial dispensation hermeneutics sees this as the church has been raptured. So all of this is going to happen in stages. And if you ever watch the Hollywoodized version of how the dispensationalists understand this. You see these funky horses that are depicted coming out one at a time, and then they show the earth going crazy. And then there's a break, and then the next horse comes forward, and then, you know, and then you see like war and all this stuff, and then the next horse uh, comes out. And so it's, they stagger it. I'm suggesting to you that when Jesus opened the scroll in order for the scroll and its full contents to be read, all seven seals had to be broken. And I, my understanding is, is the way that you do that in order to read the scroll is they all have to be broken together. So John sees the scrolls one at a time, but Jesus opens the scroll. Okay? And we went over that last week. Uh, historic dispensationalists, do you know the difference between historic dispensationalists and premillennial dispensationalism? Yeah, okay. Uh, that's fine. Um, historic dispensationalists, uh, uh, dispensationalists basically believe in amillennialism. They believe that that um, Revelation covers the church age, and that things get worse. So there's this progression in their thought. So they do see a progressiveness of seals, trumpets, and bowls, and they they focus most of their attention on the events just prior to the second coming 
not a rapture. They don't hold to a rapture. But then they're very big into Israel and the, and the thousand year millennium. All right? So if you guys ever heard of George Eldon Ladd, yeah, he is a historic premillennialist. So he puts a lot of weight on Israel when you read his, his commentary on Revelation, okay, as ethnic Israel. So, premillennial dispensationalists believe that there is a first coming, uh, what's called a rapture, which takes the church out of this, and that these, the scroll here is broken and it just unleashes havoc into an ungodly world without any presence of the church. And this is a seven-year span, and at the seven year, there's a second coming, and then the, the judgment, which is the sixth seal, is right there, which we'll get to. So, all millennialists see this from, let's just go ascension to second coming. So this all spans ascension to second coming, okay? And it all is unleashed. Now, whether or not it's, all, it's chronological or this follows this is is a moot point in amillennialist hermeneutic. It doesn't matter if there is a chronology. The attempt of the amillennialist hermeneutic is not to, to tell you the chronology or the event that matches. The, the purpose of this particular hermeneutic is to say, this is a wake-up call for the church. All of these things will happen until Jesus returns. And we have to gird ourselves up and be prepared. That's the point. All right? Um, okay, so verses one, uh, verses 1 through 2. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder. That's a key statement, voice like thunder. Come, I look, uh, come, I looked, and there, was, uh, there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and it was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. All right. Most people interpret this to be war. And they run into a problem when they get to the red horse because they also say that's war. So many commentators say the white horse is external conquest, whereas the red horse is uh, revolutionary or internal warfare. None of that applies here. Okay, I want to put out, put out of our mind the Hollywoodizing of these four horses and understand that what the picture is being seen, what the picture is, the picture that's being given here is an, a condition of what we call the city of man or an unregenerate world. The world that is under the curse of the fall. This, God, through Jesus Christ, releases into the world his judgment and it is that system into which the trumpets and bowls are poured okay so we're going to keep that in mind this is an an overview of a system or a polity if you want to use that term of the world as it now is okay so the first horse upon the breaking of the first seal one of the four living cre creatures issues a command calling forth the judgment release. Now, interestingly enough, what you're going to see is that each one of the four horsemen is, is, is called forward by a living creature. Okay, that's important because what do the living creatures represent? They represent all of creation. 
So there's a symbolistic connection there that the four horsemen, especially based back on Zechariah 6, that the, what, what is being released is global and it's, it's an affectation. It affects the created order. That's why it's announced by one of the four living beings who represent the created order. Okay? Um, that the voice of the living creature is like thunder hearkens the reader back to the vision of the throne in chapter 4, from which came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. So when, when it's announced by, and this is the only, this is the only one that's, that's, that this is set of, the only one of the four horsemen that this is set of, that the voice of the calling of this horseman was like thunder. Why do you think, any ideas on why that might be? Have you thought about, if, if you've thought about it? Let me ask, say it that way. What does thunder represent? I want to get you guys to start thinking. Uh, voice of God, lightning, thunder, Sinai. What's all that indicate? Judgment. Voice of thunder. So the, the living being announces with a voice like thunder the judgment of God. So there's symbolic there is a symbolic notation tied to the voice of the living creature. He is releasing judgment upon the earth. Okay, And the fact that this horseman actually wears a crown ties into the reason that this is the only horseman that is released with a voice like thunder. Okay, And I'll, I'll explain that as we go along. Um. The voice like thunder probably intend, uh, intends to indicate... Does everybody have notes? Okay. Tends to indicate uh, the presence of God, associated with the presence of God throughout the Old Testament, represents the judgment of God. I just said that, and this command comes directly from God's throne, which itself indicates that both the command and the resulting judgment issue from God's sovereign authority and are integral to His plan of redemption. So again, we tend to look at the things that are going on in the world as not associated with God's intention, God's plan. It's almost as if God is, is reacting to what the world is doing. That's a very, very bad place for Christians to be in. What's going on in the world is directly the result of Jesus opening this scroll. They are intended, they are purposed, there is a reason for them, doesn't matter how chaotic it looks out there, it is designed and it is sovereignly under the control of God. Okay? So when we get overwhelmed by the world, we've lost sight of the fact that this is God's intention. This is His... There's an interesting thing in, in the sixth seal. There's a statement that people run and hide from the, one, from the face of the one who sits on the throne and what? The wrath of the Lamb. This is the lamb that's being poured out. Man, that contradicts that Old Testament, New Testament concept. Jesus, God is judgment. Jesus is our friend. Because this is all coming from the lamb. The wrath of God is being poured out by the lamb. Okay? The rider on the white horse. There are those, especially among older Reformed commentators, that see Christ as the rider on the white horse. Have, how many of you have ever heard that? 
that it's Christ, that's the, that this is a symbol of Christ. I'm going to give you why they say that, and I'm going to tell you why that's not okay. <laughs> um, pri- they do this primarily because of the, the color of the horse. Okay? And because this rider wears a crown. However, the crown that Jesus wears in Revelation, is it 19, I think, when he comes back? Or is it 20? I can't remember off the top of my head. One of those two chapters. When Jesus returns with his saints, he's riding a white horse. He issues a two-edged sword right from his mouth. 19. And he's wearing what? 12 crowns. And these are golden crowns. This is a victor's wreath. What he sees here is a Roman victor's wreath. And this horseman carries a bow. So there's a lot of dissimilarity between this horse and the horse of 19. Even though a lot of Old old reformists want to draw a connection because they say that white is never a, a color of anything but purity and righteousness in the book of Revelation. That's not actually true. Okay, but anyway, that's, that's what a lot of people say. And they say this for several reasons, and I'll give them to you. Uh, the horse in the vision of Zach. Uh, um, here we go. This is why this should be rejected. Okay, and I, I gave you why they make the, the equation, but this is why it should be rejected. The horses in the vision of Zechariah, which form the prophetic foreshadowing of what we're seeing here, are clearly to be seen as being of the same kind of purpose. So what do I mean by that? If the four horsemen in Zechariah chapter 6, which are a foreshadowing of what John sees here. Remember, a lot, most of what John sees is actually a reiteration of what God has shown the Old Testament prophets in many ways with different, different symbolism added. So if the picture from which this is taken, if there is a connection between what John is seeing here and what Zechariah saw, the four horsemen in Zechariah, or the four chariots in Zechariah, were of the same type. Now, what do I mean by that? Yes, they were all four horses. What I mean is is that what they unleashed, what their purpose was, what they were about, what they brought into the world, all was of the same type. So if that is a foreshadowing, then what we need to see here is that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are all of the same type. So if you have war and murder from the red horse, if you have famine and disparity from the uh, black horse, and then if you have death and Hades, which is an interesting thing, from the dapple horse or the green horse is actually what it is, then it's out of place to assign the white horse Christ. It's also odd that Christ, who who is releasing the seals, would then himself ride out. Okay, that's kind of an anomalous picture. Although Christ does wear a crown in chapter 19, the wearing of such is not exclusive to him. The dragon of of chapter 12 wears ten crowns, as do the demonic locusts of chapter 9. So crowns do not necessarily represent divinity in in Revelation. Keeping with this, the rider on the right horse is actually released by Christ. That's what I just said. And conquest means to overcome by military force. So he releases a white horse. So we're going to... How should I do this? We'll go here. White horse. 
Um, seal one. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this and this, and I'm going to draw a picture here of the first four seals, horsemen. being released into the earth, okay? So, the first horseman, the white horse, and we're going to put him here. White horse at the top. The first horse here is released, and it was, it was given to conquest. The word conquest there actually means military victory, okay? Or military, what's the word? Mil uh, to, con to conquer by military force. Okay? Jesus doesn't ride from in his horse, uh, on his horse in chapter 19 and conquer by military force. How does he conquer? The word of his mouth. Okay? And finally, Herman Huskema uh, makes an important observation that the focus of the vision is not the rider specifically, but the horse and the rider together constituting one whole and representing one idea. Uh, to to, to personify then, the rider on the white horse would require the same treatment of the other three riders, which would be an impossibility. Okay? So there needs to be a like interpret interpretation here. If we take one horse out and we remove him from the like or the type of the other three horses and then assign this rider a name, then basically what we have to do is go back and assign the riders of the other horse a name too. And the only other rider that's given a name is death, but it's not personified. There's not a person associated with, with that designation. The rider and the red horse and the black horse have no name whatsoever. Okay. So in order to equate the white horseman as Christ, you have to do some real interpretive calisthenics. Okay? Anybody have questions with regards to that? On the white horse? Conquest. Okay? Conquest. Not war. When we get to that in a minute, I'm going to make that very clear. It's not war. It's conquest. And that's a type of attitude. That's a type of social construct. The red horse... Um, is also not war. Conquest probably means includes war, but the red horse is not, so that's where we run into some issues. All right. Uh, another popular interpretation of the rider on the white horse represents the gospel as it goes into all the earth. Now, these people who advocate this have understood that if you're going to name the rider on the white horse, you have to do so with the rest. So since the rider on the white horse is not named, what they give it is an abstract concept. And so what they say is, is that the rider on the white horse is now the gospel going forth. And they go back to Matthew 24 in order to, to support that, where it is said that there will be, star, there will be signs, there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be wars and rumors of wars, um, there will be famine, which is the three of the apocalyptic horse. And then right in the middle of that, it says, and the gospel, and this gospel must be preached into all the earth. So what they do is they equate the white horseman with that verse in Matthew 24. Okay? So, yeah, I'm just making sure I got all that. The war, famine, and death also have a depiction in the other horseman is revealed. Okay, nevertheless, it seems better to conclude 
that the rider on the white horse, in, in keeping with the obvious character of the other three horsemen, represents a satanic force that strives to advance its own dominion via political military, uh, via a political military system, and in so doing, persecute and destroy the church. I mean, it's important to remember this is all judgment. Yeah, that's another thing too. Okay, and that goes back to the thunder. Yeah. Okay, so what we're seeing here is the white horse represents a political military structure. Okay. All right, and I put it up at the top because it is engulfing. It, is, it, it, it encompasses all of the society. So when we look out at the world today, do we see this idea of conquest? What are some of the ways we see conquest, not necessarily militar militarily? What do we see going on out there? Taking over culture. Taking over culture. What about... I'm sorry? Battle for men's minds. To conquer. What about social conquest. We see that going on all the time. We call it the social mob, right? I mean, look what just happened to Chick-fil-A, which, by the way, goes back to, and those who do not receive the mark shall neither buy nor sell. Look what happened to Chick-fil-A in England. Anybody keeping up with that? They just opened a store in England. They were given a three-year lease. The LGBT community descended in force on them and drove them out. That sounds just like, and they shall neither buy nor sell unless they receive the mark, doesn't it? Yep. So, I'm sorry? But they were having long lines in, their, in Toronto. They are. <laughs> the point is, is that those kind of statements, we have to understand when, the, when it says those kind of statements, yes, they happen now, but they will grow and increase. Because when I was a kid, stuff like that never came up. But now it is. Now it's common. Now people who don't subscribe to certain things are being put out of business. Cake makers, right? You don't subscribe to our concepts, deny Christ. Happened at the winery just down, down the road. They wouldn't marry uh, the LGBT, and so they descended on him. And he retracted, which was a real bummer. He retracted his statement and allowed his I made a mistake. So he Yeah. Let me just say this. These things are driven by these kind of things. This is a demonic driving. All right? How does, how does 2% of the world's population have this kind of influence? Because it's driven by a demonic force. Uh, yeah. Okay, yes? Maybe I didn't quite get it, but going back to the white. Mm -hmm. This horse doesn't sound like a good thing, right? It's not. So, but normally the white is associated with the yeah. holiness and, and purity and so forth and so on. So yeah. how would you explain the use of white for that horse and not some other color? Okay. So when was this written? Who was in charge? Who, who was the world force when this was written? How did Rome, how did the emperor of Rome ride into Rome 
after a victory or a conquest with a white horses in a white robe in a chariot with a victory wreath. That's, so when the first century church read this, they knew immediately what this was. They saw the Roman emperor riding in. And they understood it as a context for the way that their culture was at the time when they read it. They understood that this is an overarching picture of the type of political military structure that they were living in because they immediately equated this picture with the Roman emperor as he rode in from victory over destroying his enemies. There you go. That's, that's the, the, the impetus behind the white horse. Okay, so you said that the, uh, these are demonic forces. Are you suggesting then that the horses are demonic forces that Jesus is sending forth? Uh, yes, I will say that, especially when we get to death. The thing that we tend to not equate as being theologically um, plausible is the idea that the de even the demonic, even death itself, even Lucifer is under the direct and absolute sovereign control of God. And we tend to think that God reacts to Lucifer like he did in the garden. Oh my gosh, they fell. No. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say in response to Susan's question, it isn't so much that Jesus is sending these things out as much as it is that this is the byproduct of sin. This is the fruit of sin. This is the fruit of what began, as Dean just said, in the garden. It's the consequence to the fall of man. And it is judgment on man. But it's not like suddenly now he's sending these out as judgment. It's already been in place. Well, actually, and that's not to contradict anything, but he actually is. Because every one of the horsemen is bid come by a heavenly being. So they are being directed. But it's through the church age that that's Yeah, yeah, that is true. So the demonic judgment with the, the purpose of redemption in the church age is being called forth by the very throne room of God. So we run into problems like that. If I were to tell you that Lucifer in the garden acted in total accordance with the plan and purposes of God, a lot of people balk at that. They hit that head on and they go, oh, I can't, I can't go there. Well, Revelation here shows you that that's actually true. Because God calls forth these four horsemen. He actually calls forth all of these. No, He calls forth the first four horsemen. And then from this releasing here, the rest of the judgments of God are released. So in effect, everything that's being done in the world today, all the bulls, all the trumpets, and the horsemen have all been called forth by God through Jesus Christ. This is the wrath of the Lamb. Okay? Yeah. Kevin's interjecting on the side for those of you listening at home. All right. Good stuff. All right. Smalley has a very interesting uh, suggestion with regards to the white, which goes back to what uh, 
you just said, Bob, it says, uh, how does the white, I mean, since it's always equated with righteousness. Yes, it generally is. Not always, but it generally is. Because this is a judgment released by God in the last days, Smalley says that the white of the horse and the rider is intentioned by the demonic horse as a deception. To deceive the world into believing that what the structure of this society is of God and is in accordance to God's will. And it is, but that's not the kingdom of God. And we see that right now, especially with what's going on with abortion rights, women's rights, LGBTQ, all of these other things, where the church is compromising because I don't think they're compromising. I think a lot of them are compromising because of fear, but I think a lot of them are compromising because they're deceived. Because the rider on this horse is white. And this argument about loving all people and being accepted and being compassionate like Jesus is, is compelling to those that are not really grounded. Right? So there's, there's this aspect in the white of being a deception. Okay? Uh, it is also pertinent to note that in Daniel 7, a vision several commentators hold as fulfilled in Revelation 6. Um, there are four beasts. Remember the four? There are four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And all four of them, what they say is that the, the, the depiction in Daniel chapter 7 also foreshadows the four horsemen. And all four in Daniel come out of where? All four of them. The sea. And, it's the, and it actually says there the chaos of the sea. Okay? So if, in fact, these foreshadowings in the Old Testament are being fulfilled through the release of the four horsemen, which I believe that they are, then to equate any of them as being righteous contradicts the foreshadowing. Because the four, the, the four horsemen in Zechariah were all of the same type. They brought judgment, God's judgment. And they were all agents of God's judgment, not Christ. And if you tie in now Daniel 7, all four of them come out of the sea. And there are four beasts. Okay? So, fix the authority. Okay. Yo. Uh, another, another question. Well, it's more a comment. It, to me, it's not really any different than God in the Old Testament using evil nations to chastise his people. And it was both a chastisement on his people as well as a judgment on those nations because they were then judged on how they treated his people. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. If, if, any, if any of you are really looking for a good fleshing out of that particular topic, get G.K. Beale's book on his commentary, a shorter commentary on Revelation. His whole premise about the four horsemen is with regards to that particular thing. The purification of the bride through the persecution of the nations around about it. And he ties it back to a lot of Old Testament scriptures. So what he sees here in the four horsemen is judgment upon the world, purification of the bride going on in tandem. I'm not dismissing that. I think that there is a lot of truth to that. Um, and so, um, 
And we see that from the seven churches and what have you. But he really, really puts a, a great deal of emphasis on it. And it's, it's good reading, So, if, in, case you're, in case you're wondering. All right, this writer has a crown. It's the only one of the four that does. This corresponds to... Uh, it, this depicts the authority to accomplish this, an authority that Paul clearly tells us can only come from God, and there is no authority except that which... Which God has established. So God gives this white horse authority, and it's important because He's the only one that has the crown out of the four, which means, in my understanding, that He actually is, if you take the four horsemen as a whole, if you take them as a movement forward, and you take and you interact them, as we will see in a minute, how they all interact with one another, the crown on the white horse is the one that oversees or sets the precedent for the other three to function within. Okay, and we're going to see why that works. If we build, if we build a society that's based on conquest, that's based on removing any kind of thought outside of that which is anti-Christ. So, if we conquer your mind, if we conquer society, if we conquer the economics, if we conquer militarily, if we conquer every aspect of society and make it submissive to the city of man or the beast's system than the other things, Rick made a comment earlier that really applies here, the other three horsemen are natural byproducts of that. They actually come from that. Okay, So this writer is given a crown. Um, so I just said that. Given a court, uh, the culture within the culture, any sovereignty outside of man must be eradicated, which nece necessitates an atmosphere of strife and hostility. So any, and that goes to the red horse, which removes peace. So if in fact the white horse is given the power to necessarily remove any counterthought, that necessitates strife, right? I mean, we even see it among people who claim to be of the same, I'm going to use the term, left-leaning thought process. They will turn on each other in a heartbeat. Right? In a minute. Because there is associated with the white horse, the red horse. And the red horse has removed peace from the earth. So if you ever wonder why people are always at odds, I mean, it just seems like free-floating hostility. Because the red horse has been loosed. There's no peace in the earth because the red horse has the authority to take peace from the earth. All right? And what is the outcome of the lack of peace? Strife. Individual strife. What is associated with the red horse? Once peace is removed, what happens eventually? People murder one another. And that's also associated with the red horse. Okay, so it's a violent, unresting society that this political military structure creates. Okay, so conclusion. The first horse and the rider represent a general tenor of the city of man, an insatiable desire for conquest, to overcome by force, to subjugate, to enslave, to impose a world order that is contrary to the rule of God through Christ so as to eradicate it and all who submit to it. Okay? And remember, this has been released by Jesus himself. And it is a judgment. 
because out of that comes all kinds of chaos. Verse 3 and 4, I've got enough time to do this next one. When the, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard a, the second living creature say, Come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given the power to take peace from the earth and to make, uh, make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. And I've put inside parameters, the first white horse is conquest, and it can be military. So if you're going to assign war to any one of the horsemen, it would be to the white horse, not to the red horse. Okay? Because military conquest is a part of the conquest. Whenever we have a, uh, a military state, they enforce their rules by how? Military force. Whenever there's martial law, how do they enforce that? Military force. Okay? In the state like America, what's beginning to happen? If you don't subscribe to the systems of the world, they're going to enforce it by changing the laws. So the police actually become a military extension. What we call eventually a police state. Okay? And we saw that in Nazi Germany. All right. This, any questions on the white horse? Okay, good. Red horse. Whereas the first horseman depicts Satan's attempt to gain dominion over the world, the second horseman seeks to take peace from the earth and cause lethal strife among men. The word here, uh, peace here refers to, uh, is given this definition, the harmony and wholeness desirable for the world and its society. So peace represents the ability for society to function in harmony and in peace. If the red horse under the white horse comes and takes peace from the world, all of a sudden there's no harmony. And as we just said, there's strife, there's chaos, there's conflict, there's free-floating hostility. I mean, we, we, we see this going on, at, and, and I don't mean to politicize everything, but this is all coming from underneath the white horse when we saw what happened out at the, the Trump rally in Minnesota. People were just coming out of there, and there was a whole group of them that just attacked, sucker-punched people. That's unrest. You got uh, Black Lives Matter who show up and, and just start beating on people. Then on the other side, you had this one group that I don't know that, that's the counter to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, what's this Black Lives Matter? And then there's Black Lives Matter is a very angry group. Antifa, very angry group. And then you have the counter to Antifa, which is a, uh, a conservative group. And what do they do? They show up with billy clubs and there's a street war. Strife, the removal of peace, all under the political military structure of the white horse. The red horse thrives under the structure of the white horse. Okay? And it's fed by the structure of the white horse. So we have the red horse here. Strife and murder. Um, most commentators equate the horse with, and, and, and this horse and the rider with war. However, this is simply not stated in the text. Instead, the horse and the rider specifically take peace from the earth and cause men to kill each other. Uh, it is certain that war is secondarily, or a secondary effect of this, but that is not the primary purpose here. 
In keeping with this, uh, in his Olivet Discourse, Jesus makes a distinction between wars and nations rising against one another. So there's strife. We see nations rising against each other without military action, don't we? I'm going to issue tariffs on you. Well, I'm just going to do this to you. Well, I'm strife. Nations are rising against each other, right? doesn't necessarily mean that they're launching missiles at each other. It means that there's strife between nations. Look what's going on with Syria right now. Rick. Yeah, can I ask you a question? Do sure. you know, so are you saying then in your mind that what we're reading in, in Revelation is, is somehow different from what had been going on from the beginning of time? Because all of these things have been happening in, in some senses in worse examples and experience than what we're going through right now here in the things that we are just talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, the absence of peace. I mean, people were being murdered, beheaded, killed, burned at the stake. You know, I mean, there's been wars that have been horrible. You know, the conquest, the crusades, those things. So are you, is there a differentiation in your mind as to what we're reading here in Revelation as opposed to what preceded before it? Before? Before the writing of the book of yes, Revelation. I, and I am. And the reason, this was a question that Susan asked several weeks ago. What you have in the Old Testament, what happened when Jesus came? He initiated what? He initiated the kingdom. He initiated the plan of salvation. He set in motion the beginning of the end. Prior to that, what was leading up was, was in effect what Rick said. Yes, there was, there was chaos. There was war. There was murder. There was strife. There was levels of, and I'll just be frank, there was levels of homosexuality in cultures prior to this that were boggling. They uncovered things when they were doing excavations on some of the Canaanite land that actually made archaeologists sick with the depravity of some of the stuff that they depicted. But the difference is, is that Christ has now conquered. And these things are now set in motion for a purpose of redemption. And that's the key. From this point on, from the ascension of Christ here, everything that now happens is for the purpose of bringing to conclusion God's plan of redemption. That He is now able to op open because of His death, resurrection, and ascension. Prior to that, it was man doing what man does. Alright? Now there's a focused and intentional purpose. Now, not that there wasn't previously. But everything prior to this event pointed to this event. So all the destruction, all the things that were going on, looked toward redemption. Now that Jesus has opened the scroll, everything now looks toward new creation. And all of these things point toward, and we've got to keep this in mind, all of this points toward new creation, which was initiated by the first fruit of many brothers, the Lamb. And all of this was initiated by him being slain. And the book was not opened prior to this point. Okay, from this point on, chaos, man just, mankind just being sinful. Here, there is a definite forward motion in that the, there's a redemptive purpose. Does that answer the question, right? Yeah, it's perfect. Okay. Josh. Uh, I was just wondering if maybe what we stated before that it was that a global effect might be worth mentioning too that the purpose of it is, is global in yeah. effect. 
Yeah, that is a, a, a strong purpose. I mean, now we're talking about what was once isolated events where, you know, where a, a section of the earth was in, in, incorporated. Now we see the entire created order involved. And so there is a little bit of a difference there. Um, you, could, you could argue that it was the world, the entire world back in the uh, Old Testament because it was the, old, the entire world as it was known at that point. So, yes? Is it possible that the difference is, so before it was, um, it revolved more around Israel as a nation, so a smaller part of the earth, and through Christ, salvation and redemption is offered to everyone. So from every tribe and tongue and people. So we are talking global. And so now the persecution is on a much larger scale. Yeah. And I think all of these have to be factored into this, this particular thing. Going forward, we have types and shadows. Types and shadows. Israel is a type and shadow. It is a foreshadowing of the church. That's why I don't hold a really a lot of significance to ethnic Israel, not because I discredit them or not because I'm, I always say this wrong, I'm anti-Semitic. Did I say it right that time? Um, it's because I understand the church has not replaced Israel, the church has become Israel. And that's a very key point, that in the church is now incorporated those of ethnic Israel who believe in Jesus Christ. And this notion that we have to cling to Israel as being some kind of something de you know, very significant is countered by the fact that they have broken and violated every covenant that God has ever established. And in the Word, those who break covenant with God are under His wrath. So the wrath being poured out by the horsemen is on the entire world that rejects Jesus as Messiah. Okay, so the red horse. Any other questions or comments? I'm going to bust through the... Uh, try to get through the red horse here real fast, I think. So just a random thought here on yep. Israel and your statement. Okay. Couldn't uh, one argue that, uh, yes, the wrath of God was placed on Israel, but they were chosen... And the wrath of God can be placed on us as a, as, a, as a way to bring us back to a right state of mind. And, yeah. You know. uh, yeah, I'm sure that that factors into it as well. Because you're, you're also looking at depictions and, and foreshadowings. So um, I don't cling to the notion that, you know, every, it might, I don't know the fact, but I think it's... it's out of balance to say that everything in eschatology orients around this little stretch of land by the Mediterranean when in fact we're seeing a global impact of all of this stuff? Does God have a plan for Israel, ethnic Israel? Absolutely. Does He have a plan for Afghanistan? South Africa? Mediterranean? Crete? Yeah. So God has a, an intention for the entire world and ethnic Israel has now become global Israel and as a matter of fact ethnic Israel was replaced if you want to use replacement theology by the person of Jesus Christ 
Israel was called, you are my son. Israel failed just like Adam did. So Jesus came as not only the second Adam, but the second Israel. And that's very important to keep in mind. Paul clearly says that. The promises of Abraham were given to seed, not seeds. One, who is Christ Jesus. So all the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ Jesus and are given to him because he, is, he inherits all of those. So he is the second Israel. Okay, That's important to keep in mind when we go through these things. And us being in Christ, we are now the perfected Adam, the perfected Israel, and all of those things. Okay, I know that's a whole lot of theology to try and swallow, but the question was asked. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm going to stop. Um, the horseman, we're going to get into the uh, black horse next week. And it's actually green. I'm going to call it pale green. Yeah, it's green. The, the Greek word there is green sickly green. It's actually like plant green is, is, the, is the actual word. It's, it starts it's like chlora something or other. And I don't know the exact Greek word, but the Greek word is the word for pale green. And the reason that's important is because green represented to the ancient world sickness and unhealth. So this rider seen by John as being green immediately represented death. Okay? So, alright, we're going to break um, just keep in mind that don't erase it. Yeah, don't erase it. I'm not going to erase it. I'm going to leave it up for next week, I hope. All right? So we're going to fill this out. And then as we start, as we hit the sixth seal, we're going to go up here to the trumpets. And we'll show how the trumpets coordinate into all of this.